The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back to Shaken and Stirred. Rather excited because Tom Astor, my co host, she done some research this week, apparently, which exactly what that. I have no idea um, because research for Tom is pretty much looking at the ingredients of alcohol. Tommy boy, how are you? Very well, thanks, Nigel. How are you? Good. Very well. Very well. Getting into the Christmas spirit, the sort of holiday spirit and all that kind of thing, you know. Snowing up. I don't know. This this won't come out in the summer, so we can still talk about cold weather, but I've been looking at your weather. It doesn't look terribly... Um, it looks pretty icy up where you We've are. New- several feet of snow. It's a winter wonderland. We love it. We love it. You know, we don't mind it at all. You know, in fact, whilst we're talking about sort of wintry holiday type things, what are you drinking? I tell you what I'm drinking, something quite exciting. I am drinking Cosmopolitan, but I'm going to go on a little theme at the moment. I like, you know, I've got to try and do the local thing wherever I can. I do. We all do. So I'm drinking Cosmopolitan. Look at the colour of that. It's rather weird looking. It looks like sort of like mouthwash. Grenadine, egg white, and a little bit of elderflower. From, from the hedges around here, and also a thing called uh, vodka from a, um, a distillery is called the Big Grin Company now, which is a local distillery that's opened up. It's opened up during lockdown. It's been opened up by, by a couple of 24-year-olds, a guy called Archie Lay and Ben Mills, and the ridiculous thing is, well, it's not ridiculous, it makes sense, they are not allowed to promote their own distillery and they're gin, they're making gin there they're making vodka there big grin rhymes with gin that's literally their thinking on this you can see that they haven't spent that much time in marketing it's delicious and the, the the crazy thing is the asa the advertising standards authority will not let anyone under the age of 25 in the uk advertise or promote an alcohol brand and i guess it's because you know, if you're under 25, maybe you're a musician, you know, and, a, and some big label comes to you and says, you know, promote our vodka. Maybe you're a 22-year-old musician. Maybe you've got a bunch of 11-year-old followers. So you think, you know, so I, I can imagine that's the only reason I can think of. But these guys cannot promote. I've probably just broken the law by saying their name, Archie Lay and Ben Mills. Something tells me that you can say it, Tom. Something says, I mean, listen, I mean, it is bonkers though, you're right. But it's funny, the first thing, when, I, when you said that to me, I thought, well, they're barely old enough to drink in the United States, let alone be making their own sort of alcohol. Yeah. But what the heck, who cares? I think it's great. I think it sounds amazing. And actually we do need to support local. And, uh, you know, unfortunately in this day and age, a lot of local business has gone under. And I tell you something else that they're doing. They basically have a little disdain. They have that kind of useful disdain for things like botanicals and people running on about some rare herb they might have find might have found in you know Peru or something. And these guys just say, forget that. We're making good vodka, big grin, rhymes with gin, if you drink the gin. And they're also promoting musicians. They are promoting music. So they kind of pairing their drinks with as they like. And and so I guess that is probably a reason why the ASA in for the things like this and, and you know tries to stop it's so funny it's so it's so funny i mean it, it, you almost imagine their sort of vodka having a warning labeling saying you know may contain traces of bloody good vodka yeah. um, you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> well you know to, just a you know little hint out there for everybody i am drinking and i was very close to making myself what i like to call a beam me up scotchy but I decided to change it and uh, create a okay. Irish Rattagino, which is uh, for all of you Trekkies out there. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit like the 
the, the coffee, the Klingons used to like on Deep Space Nine. And it is a mixture of Irish whiskey, one and a half ounces. I put a half an ounce of simple syrup, two ounces of espresso, and two ounces of whole milk shaken in a shaker, and then poured into my glass with smoked paprika, no less, on the top. So how about that? I wonder what you wonder who our guest is this week, don't you? Cheers, yeah. Tommy. Cheers, Lord. Before we beam ourselves up, hmm. my goodness, that is so delicious. Very, very festive too. I love that. I don't have many creamy drinks. You've got, you've got egg white in yours. But before we get to our guest, booze news. We must not forget booze news. Well, some other kind of interesting, it's not exactly news news, but it's, it's almost like a hack. I kind of got into these hacks and on um, TikTok, I actually found a hack. And yeah, I'm on TikTok, people. That's right. Nigel Barker, official on TikTok. There's stuff you can know. You're shaking your head. You're like, oh, no. Listen, there's, there's interesting things, not just dance moves, Tom. I learned that you could open a bottle of wine. Now, if, okay, Tom, what do you do if you, if you have a bottle of wine and you forget your corkscrew? You tell me. What do you do? Well, luckily, since the age of about... 25, I haven't actually ever forgotten my corkscrew, but if I found myself... Okay, imagine it's the corkscrew's day off. Corkscrew's day off. I'd push the cork in, but I'm sure there's some incredible way of heating something up and, you know, doing something extra. You're about to tell me something amazing. Ooh, look at you, look at you. Look, you see, he's smart, Tom. I love him. He's, he goes, absolutely, everyone knows the pushing in of the corkscrew technique, but then you're stuck with the corkscrew inside. But it's no, fine, it's not the end of the world. The cork's stuck inside. But he's right by, if you imagine a bottle of wine right now. There's the cork at the top. You have the wine. There's a little bit of air between the cork and the wine. Now, if you get a lighter and you, first of all, take the foil off, right? But if you then get a lighter and you heat up that piece of air between the wine and, and the cork, try not to heat the wine up. You don't want to cook the wine. But actually, very fast, that air expands and literally, like a champagne cork, pops that, uh, the, the, uh, the cork right out of the bottle. So be careful not to be looking right over the top of it. And I also found another hack, which is by putting a, a bottle of wine in your shoe, hold it in your shoe, go up to a wall or a tree, and simply bang the shoe holding the wine bottle against the wall, and it pushes. The wine actually shunts the air, and after about a minute or two of medium to gentle banging, kid you not, the cork pops out. Hey, hey presto, look at that, there you go. The internet is full of people trying this hack and smashing bottles of wine up everywhere in their shoes. Absolutely yeah. genius. But more importantly, boom, we're on right now. <laughs> Welcome to our guest. We have an extraordinary guest who is used to having an audience of thousands watching him, not one. So I'm afraid to our one listener right now, please ask your friend to tune in too. Now, our guest today is an actor with numerous accomplishments, and, and literally, uh, they go on and on and on, but probably none more prolific than as the Ferengi bar owner, Quark on Star Trek, Deep Space Nine. And for all of you out there, you know that I'm a big Trekkie. Please welcome actor and author, Armin Sherman. Armin, welcome, Armin Sherman. So nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Well, and Tom is uh, my co-host, and you know, he is, are you a Trekkie, Tom? I'm not, no, but I do, I know Trekkies and I've experienced Trekkies as well. I've been on a, I found myself on a bus once in London with a very, very, very strange um, group of people on it. And I couldn't quite work out what was going on. 
and I was going from Knightsbridge up towards Kensington High Street. And I just couldn't put my finger on why I don't, you know, I'm not a trekking. I don't, you know, I, I generally don't watch television, as you know, so I'm useless to things like this. But I noticed something was, was different about the bus. And it all became clear when we stopped outside the Albert Hall and there was a Star Trek convention and everybody on the bus got off. And I, re- I suddenly realized that, that was, there was incredible groups of people, dedicated fans, all in costume in, in, and in, you know, in their outfits going to this what convention, which I, I presume is a convention. I mean, it's a convention. And I would venture to say that if you had listened to their conversation, you would have been awed by their knowledge. Absolutely. I wouldn't, I was trying, I, mean, I, I was sort of so in awe of the visual impact of what was going on, but I think I forgot to listen. But I mean, and also, I, what I also, the other amazing thing that did cross my mind at the time, and, and it's crossing my mind again now, is that the Albert Hall is a pretty big building. I mean, you're not talking about a little bar somewhere, you know, you're talking about if you, uh, uh, to fill the Albert Hall, and it looked to me out of the window of the bus that it was, it was filling, you know, it was going to get filled. There were a hell of a lot of people attending, and I don't know. And I, I we we may get onto it later on, but I have no idea what happens. I mean, obviously, I've watched Star Trek lots of times. What happens in a, a convention if that's what it was? Well, you're good luck. You're good luck, Tom, because what happens at conventions is what's happening right now. So you're participating in a mini Star Trek convention. What happens is people just talk to each other. Right. Great. There you go. As simple as that, John. There's the answer to that question. But before we get any further, Armin, what are you drinking? That's how we normally start our shaken and stirs. Oh, well, uh, believe it or not, I don't drink alcohol uh, for a number of reasons. Not that I have a, a problem. I just don't like the taste of it, and it gives me a headache. So for this particular uh, meeting, I am drinking something I got in England many times, and that is ginger beer. Ginger beer. Okay, well, there you go. So, there, listen, you know, obviously you talked, we mentioned Star Trek, and clearly you've done a lot of different things. Right now, you have a, an amazing book that's out called Illyria, Betrayal of Angels, and we're going to get to that. And you've written several books. But clearly, you know, the Star Trek thing, I'm curious, you know, does it bother you? Does it, is it something that is, that you're, proud of it? Is it something that irritates you now that you know people bring it up all the time or they even myself introduced you as it? I'm just curious. It doesn't irritate me. I'm very proud of it. I wouldn't be here if, uh, if I hadn't participated in Star Trek. So I'm enormously grateful. Is it part of my background? Yes. It isn't necessarily the most pressing thing at the moment, but my whole life is comfortable because of it. And uh, I would be an ingrate not to appreciate it. And I do. And, and in fact, I've always been a Star Trek fan from the time that I was 15. So the idea that I actually appeared on a Star Trek series, actually three series, I won the lottery. You certainly did win the lottery, but you were a bar owner, and if not a bartender serving drinks, yet you don't drink alcohol at all. So was, was, how did you- No, you, you pour liquid into a glass. That's, it's not that difficult. I do it every day when I go to the tap and get some water. Um, no, no, uh, it wasn't difficult. And, and certainly every drink that I poured, every single one of them and every drink that every one of my bar people that came to the bar and drank, none of them had alcohol in it. We don't serve alcohol when we shoot a film, at least not on Star Trek. Not, not the one that I work. I was going to say, that's not the same as when I work in television. I mean, one of our, some of our best episodes with Kelly Catrone and everything else, we were drinking champagne, we were drinking vodka, we were drinking tequila. And well, I remember... That's the, that's the difference between Screen Actors Guild and British Equity. 
No, um, I, I said Screen Actors Guild as well, old, old boy. So you know, these are all shot in the United States, in Los Angeles and in New York. And in fact, when I've done, I've done a few movies and I, we worked on a movie with Russell Brandt. And Russell, who doesn't drink anymore, but he, he had to play, he was playing Arthur. We were in the movie Arthur. And he, he had to, so Arthur, as you know, is, is a drunk. Um, and so in order to play the role, he would have to get the alcohol and he would take a big sniff of it in order to remind himself of how he used to be when he used to drink. And then he would sort of method act and be completely out of it, but had to have regular sniffs of the alcohol. So for yourself, that's why I was wondering, are you, do, you, do you consider yourself a method actor or how do you get into these roles? No, I, I'm not a method actor. Uh, I'm a primarily a theater actor. So usually it's, it's after investigation of a long period of time that I, I craft a performance. There's great art in being a method actor, but I choose not to do that. In, in our country, don't know about England, but in our country, we have two major schools of acting. One is the method and the other is the uh, Meisner technique. Right. I find myself more in the Meisner technique than I am in the method. I'm not trying to regurgitate experiences from, from my past, but rather I'm trying to see what the other actor is giving me. Interesting. Exactly how you describe Meisner technique. For those of you, those of them out there who don't understand, I mean, people have heard of method, and forgive me if I'm making this very layman's term, but method isn't that. That's when you basically are, you learn something, you learn it to be a certain way, you become that character and you sort of stay in it. And versus, and, and versus Meisner, you're saying you're reacting off the other actor? Yes. Uh, uh, I think any technique asks you to, to delve into the character and to have the mindset of the character. I, I, I think every technique wants you to do that. Uh, the difference, and now we're getting into the weeds here, is that the, um, as far as I understand it, the method technique is simply to dredge up things that have happened to you in the past and re-experience them and bring them to the forefront. And you're acting through the prism of your past experiences. The Meisner technique uh, asks you to, to live by reacting to the person that's acting with you, whether it's one person or two or three or a whole multitude of people. So it isn't about dredging things up, although you start there, you, you think about that a little, but, but it's primarily what is the other person doing to you and how are you responding to what that person is doing to you? So then therefore, if you're playing a Star Trek character, clearly being a method actor is not perhaps the best way because how on earth are you supposed to dredge up being an alien, for God's sake? Well, uh, an alien is just the makeup. Uh, you're still yourself. The alien part of it is simply what, you, what they put on you for two hours. You, you are still playing parts of yourself. And that's, that's one of the things you learn about playing an alien, is that you can't play an alien. I tried to do that when I first appeared on, on Next Generation and uh, failed miserably. And I learned from playing Quark that what I must do is find the truth, find the humanity of the character, even though the character is not human. Hmm. I like that. I like that. So it's, it's you know, you're very philosophical. And I, I, it's funny, you know, it's I, I, when you're a big Trekkie and you grow up watching some, a show like that and you can't, I, I get very, you can't kind of get excited by the whole concept of it. And I literally, as I remember as a kid, just waiting for every episode of Star Trek and every shape and form and every planet that they went to. And I still reference it constantly throughout my life. And what is it about the fact that there are such sort of illustrious actors who have played in Star Trek, you know, and if and even, you know, you're certainly, you are a, a bardologist <laughs> and um, someone who's obviously clearly very well versed in Shakespeare. We're going to get to that, but you know, someone like Patrick Stewart too, who's a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. You know, no, he's not. 
Is, is he not? Okay, is that, is that incorrect? He was, he was at one time, but he's not anymore. Not anymore. So he, past tense. Past tense he, he was. was. Okay. He was. But your 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 question is very valid and and worthwhile. And 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 the reason I believe so many classical actors, British and American, and and every other country, has participated in Star Trek, is because classical theater, Shakespearean theater. Uh, asks actors to be a little larger in life and to deal with cosmic themes. And cosmic themes are the, are the um, meat and drink of, of Star Trek. We, we don't deal with kitchen sink problems. We deal with humanity. We deal with uh, conquering of worlds. We deal with, with love, with, with how to conquer a disease. All of those things are larger than life situations. And actors who have the ability to, to approach that, those cosmic themes are the ones that get hired. And where you get your education in that, where you get your experience in that is by doing classical theater. Before we move on, is there, is there a, an episode specifically or, or a series, I imagine probably an episode that you particularly remember or loved that you felt was really defining? I'm very proud to say there is one in particular that's, far, that's head and shoulders above everyone else. And that one is one called Far Beyond the Stars. And ironically, a great deal of that episode uh, takes place in New York City in the 1950s. And, and most of the series regulars and all of the recurring characters do not or rarely appear in their, in their Star Trek roles, but appear as, as writers and people around the story. And the reason why that's, that particular episode lives so large in my memory is that just what I was saying before, it dealt with an enormous, an enormous problem uh, in our country that's still a problem in our country and in other countries, and that had to do with racism. And it was well told, well directed, well acted, and it it got the audience out of the comfort zone of staring at at familiar characters, but rather being a, being forced to to look at themselves and see. Even though this was taking place in America in the 1950s, the episode aired in the 1990s, the problem was still very much in front of us. And indeed, here in 2020, it's still a problem and it still has to be addressed. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's funny because when you, you look at shows like Star Trek or even things like Star Wars, even, I mean, there were some of the, when you look at the sort of the sci fi world, it, it does seem to be more inclusive in large, in large part. It's sort of the, the, the maybe it's because the, I don't know that the, the the writers see the world in a very different shape. You know, I mean, I remember reading Asimov books and what have you, and you know, he would often have people like you know the sort of the Middle East would be the the sort of leading part of the world. But you know, they would t turn it around versus how we see things today. And you know, with Star Trek, you know, the, you see these different. I, I guess you know people like Lieutenant Uhuru, but you know, who in a commanding role, and you know. Um, Yes, that that was the first that was the first role that a woman, a black woman, uh, was not dominated by a male. She was her own boss, and she was the head of her department, and she gave orders. Uh, yes, uh, she listened to the captain, but but she was not the the shrinking violet that most women had been on TV up until that moment. No, completely, hundred percent. And so anyway, it just it it always struck struck me as as as, as very progressive and interesting. And I mean, you know, at what point though? Okay, did you have enough? Was it, was it a, okay, you know what, I need to move on. I mean, and I'm saying this as someone who, you know, I've worked on television for years in a completely different capacity. You know, I work on reality television, but you, you, you do a show and you do it for a long time. And I did 18 seasons with one show. 
and um, I can't remember how many actual shows itself, but it's, you get known for it, you know, and, and likewise, I'm introduced always as well by my, the show that I worked on for, forever, right? So, and despite whatever else you do, you're kind of known for that role and that part. Is there, you know, and I, I remember there being a time when even my agent said to me, you now are crossing over into an, a moment where this is what you will always be known for. You know that, right? And, you know, but, it, it, but you know, you obviously you're, this, this is now for me even like 12 years ago since I last did the show. But it's, it leads with it. Was there a time with you where you're like, I need to go or I've had enough or would you have kept going at it if you'd had the chance? I probably would have indeed kept going because the writers were always finding new things for me to do. I was enormously fortunate. I believe uh, you may have had this experience yourself. But unlike most actors on TV, even though my contract with Paramount said that I could not do really any other shows, my producers, the Star Trek producers, were very lenient and said, go off, do what you can if you want to. And so even though you are referencing my, certainly my most important and most known show, at the same time that I was doing Star Trek, I was also doing another show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so on the days that I had off from Star Trek, I was traveling to another part of town and playing another character altogether. And when I wasn't doing those two shows, my producers also allowed me to do other shows. Seinfeld, for instance, or Stargate, uh, or, or, and a myriad number of any other shows. So it was very much like being in repertory theater. All right, uh, I, was, I was playing Hamlet, if, if we make the analogy, some of the days. But on some other days, I was playing Benedict. And on some other days, I was playing Gertrude. Not Gertrude, because that would be played with Hamlet. But, but, but I was playing uh, uh, Isabella in Measure for Measure. So I never got... I never got... But Armin, the big difference, Armin, being the fact that your main role, you were playing an alien with, a, with gigantic ears and all the rest of it. So but it, the next day, but, but the next day, Nigel, the next day, uh, I was not playing that. And I had to be that character 100% as much as I had to be the, the barkeep in, in no, Star Trek. I, I agree there. All I'm saying is, is, that, is that from a, the, the production standpoint, they didn't mind letting you go, as I'm, I'm assuming, because it's not as if, if you had actually taken Quark with you and it was Quark on Seinfeld, that might have been an issue. Or if it was Quark on... But also, I guess you're an actor. I'm not an actor. So it was always me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was always me doing things versus you're, you're playing characters and you're doing other stuff and you were a visually changed character in your main show. So that perhaps made it easier for people not to recognise you because, you know, you do look quite different. I mean, you're not like, you look like Quark, right? So. Yeah, you you know there are similarities for sure, and I can see it through it. But it's uh, you know if I didn't know, I, I mean, sorry, can I interject here? I mean, it's worth remembering as well that that Nige wasn't um, offered any other roles while he was doing that America's Next Top Model, and was eventually. By the way, I don't know how your your career on um, Star Trek ended, but I pro hopefully with a lot less ignominy ignominy than um, than than Nige's. But anyway, sorry, what were you saying, Nige? I, I think that's your friend Tom trying to uh, uh, under to pull the carpet out from underneath you, Nigel. Nigel, your point is well taken, but you you answered your question. I did indeed play different roles. We were discussing before about how how you have to inhabit a character. So I was never bored. I was going from one character to another. Granted, it was basically between Buffy and Star Trek, but as I said, there were other roles as well. And, and so I, when I came back to Star Trek, I was always refreshed because I had been somewhere else during the time off.
Where, where does this classical actor, this this sort of thespian, all of a sudden are on sort of Star Trek and Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I mean, they almost it's, it's almost sounds incongruous. I mean, clearly you do you're an actor and you can do all kinds of things, but these are sort of they're all sci-fi, right? Were you ever sort of craving to do something completely different, like a, a different? Yeah, you're nodding your head. So what? what yes, Otto, yes. You you asked about being pigeonholed before, and and there is that. I found that as I entered my fifties, and I had done all this sci-fi, and I'd done a lot of sci-fi. That the industry saw me as a sci-fi actor, and I did very much like want to get out of that medium. And again, I was very lucky. There, there's a very famous producer. His name is David Kelly, and he did a number of law shows: uh, Boston Legal, Boston Public, uh, Ali McBeal, and and those were not sci-fi, of course. But he was a big fan of mine, and so I often appeared on those shows as well. That was my relief from start from from sci-fi. I'm grateful to sci-fi, but but I I always had opportunities. So it it's easy to pigeonhole people into little niches. I somehow avoided those niches. I was very, very lucky. I'm not by any means world famous as an actor, but as an actor, I worked all the time and and was grateful for the diversity of roles that I was given. Your roles are world famous, though. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like you, you say perhaps you're not necessarily, but you are in a way. Because, you know, if I was to mention, you know, obviously your Star Trek character, Quark, whatever, you, people all over the world know who you are. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, you know. So it's, you, you know, yes, you're, and that's really, you're, you want to be known for your work, obviously, clearly. And, you know, and that you made it into a very prolific character. And had the character not been interesting, for sure, the writers and everyone else would have killed you off. You would, somehow you would have been beamed out into space way early on. Look, moving on, you have obviously clearly, you know, become quite a prolific writer. And when did that start for you? When did the sort of desire to sort of, I guess, put your, your thoughts down and word yourself uh, start? Well, I wanted to be a writer as a child. And uh, I thought uh, as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old that that's what I was going to do. But I got seduced by the dark side of the force. And then an opportunity sh- uh, appeared while I was doing Star Trek early on. And again, it, it was because of the celebrity of, of being on that franchise. A publisher came to me and suggested that I co-write with another author, a very prolific Irish writer, a science fiction book. And they, and they wanted the book to be slightly based on my Quark character, my, my Star Trek character. And so I think they thought that Michael, my co-writer, my co-writer Michael Scott, would do all the writing. And that I would just sort of like Shatner, you know, mention a couple of things and then put my name on it and we'd sell books that way. You, um, you hear that shade there, Tom. That was a little bit of that was a bit of Star Trek shade going down there. I like that. Well, Shatner is our next guest, actually. Go on. So uh, Michael very kindly sent me the first chapter of the book that we were doing together, and I didn't like it, and uh, or I had problems with it, and I rewrote it. And and Michael was gracious enough to say, you know what, you're a good writer. Why don't we do this together? Uh, why don't we just, you know, work on this as a team? And so that's where the beginning of my writing became. And that ended up as a trilogy. It was a sci-fi trilogy called Merchant Prince. And I got the itch to write. And I really, when you sit in your trailer ad infinitum, waiting for them to call you to come in and shoot something, after you've memorized the lines, after you've thought about it as much as you possibly can, what do you do but watch TV 
And after a while, you don't want to watch TV anymore. Tom doesn't want to watch TV at all. So um, I got bored with TV and I wanted to write. What else can you do in your trailer uh, besides drink, perhaps? And so I began to write and it was like little finger exercises, little I, I, working scales on the piano. I wrote, I rewrote, I rewrote again. Things got better. I, I began to look for my voice and the voice, I think, eventually came. But but I believe we're always developing our voice. So um, it, it was always there. But but as I said, the acting was the what paid the bills. And so that was more important. But the writing was always there. And as I as, as my acting career peaked and started to come down on the other side, I began to say, this is really what I want to do. There are three things I want to do in my life. One is to write. Two is to teach, love teaching. I teach Shakespeare in, in various venues. And three, to perform. And it really is in that order now. Write, teach, and, and act. So you, you, you mentioned Shakespeare right now. And obviously, yes, you do teach Shakespeare. I've, I've seen that, in, in, and that must be fascinating. But what was it about Shakespeare in the first place? Was it as a child that you discovered him, that you just fell in love with his prose? And you know, I, mean, I, I mean, I think almost every child reads Shakespeare. Certainly in England, they do at least. But most kids, I think, read it and, you know, yeah, they like Romeo and Juliet or they may, there's some aspects of it, but they find it quite confusing and it's sort of forced upon them. They don't necessarily fall in love, but you clearly fell in love with it. And what, why? What was it about Shakespeare that drives you? Well, the, the, the running theme between the three things that I want to do is an appreciation for language. Language has always been thrilling to me, how it starts, how it, how it morphs into other things. What does language do to people? How can certain words affect people? How do you put language and emotion together? This was something that early on was one of my desires to learn more and more about. So the language of Shakespeare became fascinating to me. And really what keeps me fascinated with Shakespeare is the, the great amount of worldly wisdom that you can learn from, from reading his lines. and and. Not a day goes by that I discover something that's enormously valuable. But two, I'm a puzzle solver. I think that's what all actors do is try to solve puzzles. You know, what is the core of this, of this character? What is the core of this scene? But what, in, in Shakespeare, what does this language mean? What do the words mean? Why did he write it this way? What is he trying to say? Why does he use this sort of language. Why is it in prose sometimes? Why is it in verse sometimes? Why is it a complicated sentence sometimes? Why is it a very simple sentence sometimes? Why, 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 why? And that question why is what has always kept me intrigued with Shakespeare because as deep as I get into the investigation, there's always more to learn. It will never be solved completely by me. Maybe somebody else will, but for me, it's a puzzle. I'm a detective, but I'm trying to solve this crime. Do you try to emulate Shakespeare when you write yourself? As a writer, I do and I don't. One of the whys has been answered. Why does he write this way? And, and the study of rhetoric has been essential in teaching me why he wrote the way he did. So my study of rhetoric, I emulate that study of rhetoric when I write. And in that sense, I'm emulating Shakespeare. But I'm wise enough to know that if I use all the words that Shakespeare used, I'm going to lose my audience because sometimes they're very, very archaic. So I stay away from the more archaic language because I have to, I have to entertain, I'm an entertainer, 
I have to entertain my audience and I can't put them off by using iwis, for instance, in a sentence because nobody knows what iwis means. Interesting. It's funny you should say that, actually. And I was wondering that, too, because, you know, clearly it, it, it was written at a certain point in time. But that doesn't really take away from the fact that if Shakespeare were alive today, you know, how would he write, right? He, he would, it's not that he, you know, that was the language perhaps of the day. Therefore, you know, that's the way he wrote too. Obviously his, his thought process was one way and therefore he writes in certain ways and there are perhaps riddles or the importance of a length of a sentence or the short, shortness of a sentence or all the rest of it, but, and the, the actual language itself, but it was also the language and the colloquialisms of that particular moment in time, right? So uh, is yeah. one not able to just take that idea, 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 and apply it to today, and write as you as would one would today with today's language? Uh, I think so. Language changes, as I said, it, it morphs. The language of today is very different than the language of the fifties when I was a child. We don't talk like that anymore. And then I imagine another fifty years, uh, people will listen to this conversation that we're having and go, "My God, they spoke funny at that time." I don't know about 50 years. They, I think yesterday, I mean, you know, people think Tom sounds funny every time he speaks, pretty much. But uh, that's just his accent, you know, from Oxford. Right, Tom? Well, yeah. Well, I'm, only, I'm 20 miles up the road from Stratford as well. So hang on, you know, I'm as close, I'm closer than both of you to, to Shakespeare's birthplace right now. And I hope that some of it's rubbing off. I hope so too, Tom. May I ask which town you're in? I'm in uh, Chipping Norton. Chipping Norton, yes. I started my walk. Uh, uh, the Cotswold Way starts in Chipping Norton. Excellent. And you've, uh, you've done a big walk here. You've, you've, you've been around. Entire walk. I've done the entire uh, Cotswold Way, and uh, I hope to do it again someday. Amazing. Well, next time you do, you must, you must look me up. You've got my details now. You must look me up and come and, come and stay or come and whatever. Come and do it for a cup of tea. It depends how your walk's going. I'll try to do it at the beginning of the walk, Tom. Therefore, I won't muddy up your, your house when I, if it's at the end yeah. of the walk. I'll do it at the beginning yeah. of the walk. It's quite a way. It's, no, it's about beautiful, the food as well. And actually, funny enough, I mean, talking about Shakespeare, I, the last time I went to see a, a play at, in Stratford uh, was Anthony Cleopatra with your co-cast member, Patrick Stewart, who was in it with Harriet Walter and in, a very, in a very small theatre. It was just literally the two of them. I mean, it was the most extraordinary thing. It was like an incredibly intense, very close close to, you know, it was, it was, I suppose, as Shakespeare, you know, as it used to be performed, which is in a very, you know, you're surrounding the stage and you're right on top of the characters and there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's no room for error from the actor's point of view. Um, and, it's and it's better that way, Tom. It's better when it's, when it's a small venue. Large venues are what usually put people off from Shakespeare because it's not right. meant to be in a large venue. It's great for films, but it's because of the close-up. But, but, but it's terrible if you have a large venue. Right. Is that, and it's your preference if you're ever acting in a Shakespearean, which I, I would imagine, I mean, I don't know, I'm taking it for granted, but I'm assuming that you've done your fair share of... I've done a third of the canon in many plays I've done more than once. Right. And did you find that most of the time was done in that format, that sort of close-up, kind of, in, you know, intimate? It is. I have also been on large stages as well. It is much more rewarding both for the audience and for the performers to do it in a more intimate space. Because, because as you say, the original productions were written for a more intimate space. After all, it was done with, uh, when they weren't working at the Globe and they were working at the other theater, it was all done with candlelight. So it was a very intimate uh, a space and an atmosphere. Yeah, and expression played a big part as well, I would imagine. You know, the, I imagine, uh, and a different type of acting than, than, than what we have now, 
But we can say, going back to what Nigel was talking about earlier on, that, that Shakespeare probably preferred, I, I, I know for sure he wouldn't have called it that, but he preferred method acting in the sense he wanted the performances to be smaller. That's Hamlet's speech to the players. He wants it to be more intimate. Don't wave your hands too much. It, it, it is meant to come from the soul. And when performances, whether it's Shakespeare or not, do come from the soul, it, it's moving. And that's what an actor must do for an audience is move his or her audience. Mm. Spindrift brings family and friends together during the holiday season, spreading holiday cheer, shaken and stirred style. The best part is it's made with just sparkling water and real squeezed fruit. That's it. It's the perfect drink for the holidays because it's a healthy and delicious alternative to soda with no added sweeteners. Let's be honest, you'll get all the sweeteners you need from all the holiday goodies. Spindrift Cranberry Raspberry is the perfect mixer for your cranberry ginger bourbon smash or to add some flair to a classic martini. So shake up your beverage selection this holiday season by going to drinkspindrift.com and use promo code SHAKEN25 for 25% off. That's code S-H-A-K-E-N-2-5 at checkout for 25% off. Cheers. I want to get onto your book. I want to get onto your, your new book, Illyria, Betrayal of Angels. I have a copy right here sent to me by your publisher. Thank you very much indeed. Now, in it, there's a character, Dr. John D. Now, this is a character, it's a familiar character for you, you know. You've used this character before. Tell us about Dr. John D. He's a, a conjurer, I hear. He's a Queen Elizabeth's conjurer. And um, he's in, the, in your book, he's here to uncover treason, uh, reveal terrorists and unveil threats to the crown. Tell us about the character in general, Dr. John Dee, and, and, and where he comes from. Uh, and, and then I'd love to just dive into the book a little bit. Sure, thank you for that, Nigel. So uh, John Dee uh, lived in Mortlake, which is uh, right next to Richmond, uh, outside of London. He was a, a great mathematician. He was a philosopher, a natural philosopher. He uh, lectured all through Europe, a very famous lecturer. He was an astronomer, an astrologer, and he's called the Queen's Conjurer because one of his primary achievements, at least for Queen Elizabeth, was that he chose the date of, of her taking the throne. There was, there was a specific date that he had looked at the stars as an astronomer, as an astrologer, and said, this is the most propitious date for you to be queen. And because she reigned for as long as she did, she thought that that date was, was a beneficial one and therefore very grateful to the man for that. She was also very much interested in alchemy. He was an alchemist. He was a man, what we would call a Renaissance figure, a re Renaissance man. He knew many things. Unfortunately for him, it was a time when people were discovering all sorts of new things. We just had found that Europe had just found out that uh, Earth went around the sun and not vice versa, as they've been taught for centuries. They, they were finding out that uh, Americas existed, that islands in the South Pacific existed, that, that people of a totally different culture existed. It, it was a time of experiment and of discovery. John Dee, it, uh, being a religious man, he had at one time been a chaplain, decided that wouldn't it be wonderful if we knew God's mind? Now that seems outrageous to us today, but in a time of discovery, when all sorts of new worlds are being discovered, 
I tend to believe that it wasn't as outrageous to him as we think of it now. So he believed that somehow he could speak to angels. And he set up a system, it's called Screen, where he would get a, a intermediary to stare into the light of a very polished stone. And supposedly that intermediary, that screer, would be able to communicate somehow with angelic voices. Unfortunately for Mr. D, in my humble belief, uh, he was taken to the cleaners and these screers were phonies, but he believed them. And, and unfortunately for, for Dr. D, he has gone down as, as a notorious quack because of this quest. And one forgets all the other major accomplishments that he had. And he did many things. Uh, he helped in navigation, for instance, in, in trying to help uh, boats uh, figure out where they were in the ocean. We take it for granted. We have latitude and longitude. Well, at that time, I can't remember which they had, but they only had one. They didn't have them both. So they knew laterally where they were, but not horizontally where. Um, but he helped with that as well. One of the things that he did was when he went abroad to lecture, he would report back to the English government of what was happening in various countries. And though we don't think of that naturally as spying uh, or what they would call intelligencing, it was. It was because they could find out what certain courts had up their sleeve and where they were going, and, and he would report back. So when Michael Scott, who I mentioned earlier, introduced me to John D., I became fascinated with this man, not only because of his notorious desire to speak to angels, but because of all the other accomplishments that he had. And one of the accomplishments he had was his being a spy. Armin, in your first book, was in your first book, wasn't he? It wasn't they, they had a sci-fi aspect to them, right? That was a sort of yeah. thrown into the future, right? Right. Michael, as I said, my first co-writer, Michael Scott, introduced me to to John D. And but as I said earlier, the publisher really wanted me to write about Quark. So we used John D as a persona, but really what Michael and I were writing about was a Quark-like character who happened to be an Elizabethan. Right. And while I was writing the sci-fi novels, I and as I did more and more research into the historical John D, I felt that I had betrayed him, that I had written something that wasn't him at all, and that I was using his name and his persona for the wrong reasons. And so while I was writing the sci-fi novel, I made a promise to the ghost of John D that I would try to write something that was much, much, much closer to the real John D. And that's where Illyria, uh, why Illyria was written. Illyria. So where is Illyria exactly? I mean, I was trying to sort of look it up. And it, is it, it's like in the Balkans or was some sort of area of Europe. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. And that has nothing to do with my novel. But yes, one of the things that I try to do in my novel, and I believe I'm successful, is to marry fantasy and history together. Now, uh, it's not sci-fi. So what is the fantasy? The fantasy is, anyone who's familiar with Twelfth Night, one of Shakespeare's plays, knows that Illyria is the island on which Twelfth Night takes place. So in some sense, Illyria is that never-never land uh, from Twelfth Night, an island in the middle of nowhere. Certainly, Illyria was originally, as you say, in the Balkans, or in that area, in the Middle East. And for me, because I needed a place to be a, a role model for this island, for me, it is the Isle of Guernsey in the middle of the English Channel. 
which is an English possession, an English territory, but is much closer to France than it is to, to England. Why? Because one of the things that was predominant in Elizabethan times that we rarely hear about, but was what was perhaps one of the most important concerns of the time was the religious infighting that was going on between Protestants and Catholics all over Europe, including England. And uh, Henry VIII, of course, started the Anglican Church, which was a revolt against the Catholic Church. But then his daughter Mary brought it back to Catholicism. And then his other daughter Elizabeth uh, and his son brought it back to Protestantism. But there was a great section of the country uh, where Tom lives and above that wanted to see um, England return to Catholicism. And I wanted very much to deal with that problem in the book. Do you ever, I mean, are you trying to also tie in modern themes about what's happening in today's day and age into the theme or you solely- no, I, left, I, left the, I let the audience uh, find that for themselves. It is not my primary concern. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to do science fiction where I write about something that's fantastical and you figure out what the connection is, what the echo is. No, this is more about the horrible infighting when, when religions war with each other. We, we've seen this for centuries. It still exists. England went through a period of time in our lifetimes when Catholic, uh, Catholic Ireland and Protestant Ireland were, were at each other's throats. We, we've lived through the Shia and, and the Sunni in the Middle East fighting with each other. We see this constantly. So this is a universal problem that hasn't disappeared. It's just morphed into something else. You know something, it's really, it's, it's a kind of, I mean, this is going to sound maybe it's completely too off the, off the rails, but right now, as we sit here today, we have currently in, in, in England, we don't do really talk about politics on a show if we can help it, but we, uh, France, Brexit is taking place at the moment, where England has decided to leave the European Union. So we're just before, we're filming here, you know, we're recording this just for Christmas, we've got a surge in our country, this, 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 this virus is, is surging. And the Brexit deal, if the EU and Britain hadn't negotiated the deal by midnight last night, there was no way it could possibly be ratified before the 1st of January, you know, which is when, it, when we literally officially leave the EU. So, so I'm, I'm getting to the point. Um, what happened yesterday was, was rather ironic. France shut its borders to the UK and decided to get the EU and just said, no, forget it. We're not taking any trains. We're not having any, any planes. We're not having any boats. We're not, we're just, we don't want anything. We don't want anyone or anything from the UK. Close their borders. And, you know, while this was going on, I just had this thought in my head. I was like thinking, Christ, and I've, just, I've taken the liberty of just looking up the date of when Calais, which is across the, 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 the channel in France from England, it's the nearest point to, to England in, in France, Calais was under English control until 1558. It was an English town. And I was thinking, which is a sort of, a, that 1558 ties in with, well, England, Queen Elizabeth, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's yeah. Um, I can even know my kings and queens now. Um, yes, Queen Elizabeth, uh, 1558 is just about the time that Elizabeth became queen. I believe she became queen. Forgive me, I should know this and I don't. I believe it was 1559. Yes, because the previous three years had been, who was it, Mary or something? Yes, it was Mary, and then before Mary was Edward. And they were all, they were all children of Henry VIII. 
And I was just thinking, you know, it's incredibly funny that had we still had Calais to this day, you know, the French wouldn't have been able, I mean, because literally we're an island, so they just shut the whole thing. We literally cannot go, no one in this country, and, and the rest of the world's followed suit, and I'm, God, the English look out, it's disease-ridden. So we can't go anywhere right now, but it's, it's this amazing moment. I thought if we still had Calais, it would make life a lot easier, because we could sort of at least get over the water. The, the English were always very upset that they lost Calais. It was indeed the last city uh, on, on the European continent that they had. And there, uh, I told you that my role model for Illyria is Guernsey. Guernsey yeah. was occupied by the Nazis during World War II. So it does happen. And in fact, in Elizabethan times, you could not travel abroad, abroad anywhere unless you got the permit of the country, uh, yeah. excuse me, from England. England, you had, to, you had to have the government say, okay, we will allow you to go somewhere else. Yeah. Because they were, they were trying to keep people out as well and keep their people in. Which ties into exactly what you've just been saying. Nothing has changed. I Nothing mean, right now you can go, the English government will give you a certificate to travel on business if you have, you know, had a coronavirus test or whatever it is. But really, as you were saying, whether it's the Shias, the Sunnis, the bloody English, the Protestants, the Catholics, very, very little. And this goes back to what you said earlier earlier in, 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 in our conversation about, you know, so much stuff that goes on in Shakespeare is, is still totally relevant. And, you know, you're Illyria and Guernsey. I mean, it's, the French are sort of livid by the idea that, you know, it's a bit like the Spanish a livid that we still have Gibraltar, you know, which is basically like what Calais used to be. And they're absolutely outraged that we could still, you know, have this little... At the same time, they have Ceuta, which is 10 miles away on the North African coast. The hypocrisy and the sort of ridiculous... Not, and very little in the warring, in these sort of... In that sense, has changed, really, over 500 years. I mean, maybe more, you know. Exactly. People, people are still concerned about property and, and, uh, and about nationality you know that's what happened in in crimea crimea that the russians said well this is a russian property and they and they can't uh, they can't have it yes it's still happening it's still happening yeah book one armin so how many books are we due you're due another two when i submitted to the publisher of which uh, my friend gia was a part of i hadn't realized that i had written too much and uh, but they were smart enough to say after they had bought the project they had smart enough to say, how many words do you have? And when I told them, I think um, their, their heads blew up because it was just too many words. Because I've been writing, uh, Star Trek's been off the air now for 20 years, and I've been writing since Star Trek. So we decided to divide it into, into three books to make it a trilogy. And, and I think actually it'll work better that way. Um, the next book, if all goes well, and it should, should come out next November, although... In my heart of hearts, I, I hope that it'll come out earlier. But that's a, a contractual thing that I have to negotiate with, with the publishers. And do we see, do we see these turning into uh, a, a movie franchise? No, no. It's a very categorical no there, Armin. Why yeah. is that? Do you have control over that? Uh, you asked me before, do I get a little upset when people ask me about Quark? No, I do not. But, the, but that question does upset me. And it's not your fault. People assume because I'm connected with uh, entertainment business that I want my book to somehow become a film or a TV show uh, or a series. And the answer is no. I see myself as a writer. The be all and the end all should be the book, the communication between the writer and the reader. And I don't necessarily want it to become something else. If someone is desirous to make it into something else, 
fine, great. I'm not going to stop that. That would be lovely. But it is nowhere in my horizon. I do not do not want that at all. I like that. Desirous. You don't hear that too often. A little desirous thrown in there. Well, yeah. I have a number of words like that in my novel. Words that certainly you understand, but you just don't hear that often. No, exactly. A wiss. You said earlier, a wiss. You said no one knows. A wiss. I-W-I-S. What, what does it mean? Uh, I think. I wiss or... Uh, for example, uh, it means that. Or uh, height, for instance. Height, H-I-G-H-T, doesn't mean how tall you are, but it means named. I'm speaking to you, and you, and you are height, Tom. Okay. Those words are archaic, and nobody oh. knows what they are. Oftentimes, our trouble with Shakespeare is not that the words are archaic. It's that they have secondary and tertiary meanings that we use rarely. We do use them but we rarely use them. And therefore we don't think of them immediately. And, and that's usually the problem with understanding Shakespeare. And when I teach actors how to, how to approach Shakespeare, uh, besides teaching the rhetorical skills, which is looking at the language and seeing why certain words go together the way they do, not having nothing to do with verse. I also ask them, what is the secondary meaning in this? Because maybe you're confused because you don't get the secondary meaning. Here's an example, very quickly, sorry to teach. Okay, the word become. For us, become immediately means to us something turns into something else. It becomes something else. But oftentimes Shakespeare uses it in the way that we sometimes use become, which is, Tom, that's a very becoming sweater you have on. Mm. And so yeah. that becomes you. And, and if, we, if we are aware of that secondary meaning, which we use, then we'll understand the passages a lot easier. It's, 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 it's being open to secondary and tertiary meanings of words and not immediately going to the primary meaning of the word. Armin, you do understand he's been wearing that sweater for about 25 years. Now he's it, never taking it off. But my, but my statement is still true. It has still become. Yeah, but, it, but it's like becoming something else. But uh, it's, exactly, yeah. it's become a part of it. What <laughs> yes, whereas, yeah, I was going to say, no, it's, it's just unbecoming is what he's used to. Used to. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> oh my goodness, I tell you what. Are there any Shakespeare? I mean, you talked about, I mean, I mentioned your book turning into a film, and you're, you, I almost lost it from him. And I, I saw you completely sit up there. Your eyes were ablaze. If you were able to come, you know, if, if, if you, they say if your eyes could throw daggers, they did for a second there. But throw daggers, what? that's a Shakespearean expression. There are daggers yeah. and smiles. Yes. There you go. So yeah, I'm just throwing them out there, just coming out naturally out of my vernacular. But, um, are there any shake or are, are all Shakespeare films? Are they an abomination, or do you like any of them? No, are no, 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 of course not. Of course not. Film, some Shakespearean films are wonderful, are, are just terrific. Shakespeare wrote cinematically, although he was confined to a small stage. But but look at Anthony and Cleopatra. Tom was talking about the about the production that he saw that Patrick was in. It's a cinema, cinematographic. It travels from country to country and country. You can't do that on the stage. You can't do that in film. And, and, and it can enhance the story, the appreciation of the story, because you can do that. And because of, uh, of close-up, you, you can really see what a, what, what a character is thinking, which is hard to do when you're on stage with a, with a large audience and a large stage. So no, many, many uh, films adapted from Shakespeare are really quite wonderful to watch. And of course, what they do is, is to cut out all the stuff that's difficult and leave you with all the good stuff. And, and, and that sometimes is infuriating because that difficult stuff is sometimes the gems of that play. 
But for the most part, no, no, I'm, I'm not a um, purist that Shakespeare should only be on stage, no. Do, do you think Shakespeare would have made movies had he been around? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. He would have made movies if he had the ability be because he thought in broad terms. Really, his history plays jump around from place to place in England. He would have loved the ability to take a camera, camera crew and go on location. That would have been uh, heaven for him. Do you have a favorite Shakespeare yourself? I do have a favorite, but not a play. <laughs> I saw that as a question you might answer, ask, and I have come up with a charming little answer to that. So here it is. Um, there's an apocryphal story that um, some noble woman was sitting in the audience and was watching Richard III and just got a huge crush on Richard Burbage, the actor playing Richard III. And she got a note to him and asked him to join her for uh, a little bed work uh, several hours later in the day. Now, don't know how it happened, but uh, Shakespeare got to that bed before Burbage did and uh, had his way with her. She had his way with him. And at the end of their lovemaking, there was a knock at the door and the messenger says, uh, uh, Richard III is downstairs. That was the message. Richard III is downstairs. And Shakespeare's response to that was, uh, tell him that William the Conqueror came before Richard III. <laughs> And there you have it. And first of all, people, I've never heard it known as bed work before. <laughs> I was beginning to wonder what it's like needlework. I'm like bed work. And then of course it, it, everything transpired. <laughs> you learn something new. Thank you very much, Armin. But before you go, Armin, we'd love to do something we call last orders on uh, Shake and Stone. It, it, it just it takes a couple of minutes and there's sort of rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do the best I can. I'm going to interrupt there. I'm going to ask the first question, which has just sprung to mind. Bearing in mind that I've extended an invitation next time you walk the Oxfordshire way to come and stay with me or, or drop in for a drink. Bearing in mind also that one of my neighbours 10 miles away happens to be your co-actor, Patrick Stewart. He lives, he's got a house about 10 miles away from me. Would you come and stay with Patrick or with me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably neither. Uh, I probably stay at an inn somewhere, not because I don't uh, appreciate your hospitality, but uh, it's a long walk and I probably would have to prepare for the long walk. Yeah, but I've got quite, I'm sorry, I live on a farm with various cottages. I wouldn't actually, it's no, just- No, no, no Tom, you've uh, got your answer, old boy. There's no taking it back now. Sorry, <laughs> you, clearly your reputation goes before you and you neither, neither. neither. In an inn. No, I'd rather go and stay in a pub. Well, you've got one of those here as well on the farm. But anyway, listen, we can more about that later. Here we go. Drum roll, question number one. Or two, actually. Question number two. Here's the uh, <laughs> To be or not to be? <laughs> That's an antithesis. There you go. Very smart. You see, very clear. You can't ask people like Armin questions like that. It's not going to play along with it. He's going to start throwing words at us that we still don't understand. So on this particular podcast, instead of having the sort of, the sort of star next to it which says illicit or, or explicit, we're going to have to say use a dictionary. In this particular one. Good. Use a dictionary. I'm interested in language. Let people learn about language. Okay. Your favorite quote. Sentence of this breathing world scarce half made up, and that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Oh, there you go. That's your favorite quote. I, I'd throw that that's one. Well, I would stare in the mirror at my makeup being completed. That quote invariably came into my head.
sent into this breathing world scarce half made up and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me. There you go. I like that. I take that. Okay, here we go. What floats your boat and gets your goat, Armin? Uh, teaching floats my boat. Uh, asking whether my book wants to become a film or TV gets my goat. Good. Well, I'll remember to ask that again next time I see you in person. Um, <laughs> goodness me. Okay. In the movie of your life, who would you have play you? Wallace Shawn. Okay. Why is that? I love him. He's one of the great actors of all time. I had the great luck and, and enjoyment to work with him. He's one of the smartest people I ever met. And uh, he would understand my life better than most. There you go. And there's me thinking you'd say William Shakespeare. But anyway, there you go. Final question. Shaken or stirred? Stirred. Stirring you are too, Armin. I appreciate your, your time today. Thank you for coming on Shaken and Stirred. Everyone, you can buy the book Illyria, book one, Betrayal of Angels. It is out right now. Where can they get this? Apart from on Amazon, I would imagine. But Right. There are, there are two better places than Amazon, although Amazon will indeed provide it for you. One is go to my publisher's website, which is www.jumpmasterpress.com. That is the publisher. Uh, that is absolutely the best way to go. And I believe at times there are three different versions of the book, uh, a ebook, a, a paperback, and a hardcover. I believe certainly the hardcover is cheaper with Jumpmaster Press. If that's hard to remember, Jumpmaster Press is a little hard to remember, then um, if you've heard of me, Armin Shimmerman, go to www.armanshimmerman.com, uh, go to shop, and it will connect you to Jumpmaster Press, and you'll get the book, and I will get a little bit more of a royalty that way. There you go. Let's keep Armin in business. I can feel the crowdfunder going right now. That, that's the Ferengi in me. That's the Quark in me speaking. We love that. We love that. But let's end on a little Star Trek note. Uh, thanks so much. Really, really appreciate it. Armin, live long and prosper. <laughs> live long and be prosperous. Cheers to that. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya. See ya.